take responsibility for everything. Mm. In the end, if it's yours, you're responsible. Yep. If you do that, no matter how bad things go, there's a path. I'm still standing 14 years later because I did that. Everybody, this is Devin Miller here with another uh, episode of the Inventive Journey. For those of you new to the podcast, um, I'm Devin Miller, the host. Uh, I am a patent and trademark attorney, founded my own uh, law firm, Miller IP Law, as well as a serial entrepreneur that focuses on helping startups and small businesses however I can, including uh, protecting their businesses with patents and trademarks. Um, today on the uh, podcast, we have Chris Murphy. Uh, Chris is a cybersecurity uh, person, uh, does a lot of in that work in that in that realm of uh, coming up with the great and uh, breakthrough technologies that uh, will hopefully uh, change the world. So welcome, Chris. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Doing well. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself as far as uh, you started out doing cybersecurity. Um, oh, love- I started out joining the army to be a map maker. <laughs> I was a cartographic draftsman. Um, I've done a little bit of everything. I got out of the army and in 81 and computers were just coming. Mm. So I learned how to build my first computer with my uncle out of popular mechanics. That's how I came to computers. Um, and I've been doing it ever since, but I've also had to hold the job along the way to survive as I, um, got to where I am. So I've been through the journey of the internet, watching it evolve and grow as I've been through the journey of watching what were $4,000 computers that you can buy for about 30 cents today in a um, cheap throwaway calculator. You know, the world has evolved. Um, I remember when we first were thinking about the internet, we were on BBSs. I had two modems. One came in and one went out and I linked to other PBSs. So I've been through the road. So along the way, the internet evolved. Hmm. Something was missing. And that's kind of where I fit in. In that evolution process, we skipped a step. And that step that we skipped keeps coming back to hurt us. So before we dive into jumping back, so you went into the army and we didn't even talk about that beforehand. So that's an interesting one. You went into do map making. How did you then make the transition from map making or doing maps over to computers and, and getting involved with that? When I got out of the army after my three years in Fort Belvoir and Fort Bragg, um, there wasn't a whole lot of work in the early 80s. It was a factory. I left for the army to leave a factory. Mm. When you come from a factory town, those are your options. So I went back to the factory, but I had uh, friends that I met through the military who started teaching me about computers. So one thing led to another, a couple of popular mechanics went my way, and then we started talking about how to assemble them, and it turned into a conversation that's still going on at this point in my life. Well, cool. So all from uh, all from going back to the factory, having a few people that were interested in sharing that with you, to now leading you down the path to doing uh, cybersecurity and uh, getting in the whole world of how to protect everybody's data. Yeah, the army was critical in learning what security protocols meant. Uh, if nothing else, the army does know how to do secure do security protocols, or at least put a good emphasis on that. Yes. So you get into computers. 
and you start down that path. And then, so tell us a little bit more about that. So you, you know, you started working at a factory, started as a hobby and how did that lead to kind of where you're at today? I left the factory for Radio Shack so I could manage a Radio Shack and learn about play with their computers because their computers were better than the ones that I could build. It's still an expensive habit. Uh, and I was living in a Radio Shack buying parts anyway. Mm. <laughs> remember Radio Shack? They don't exist anymore. I do uh, remember Radio Shack. So I'm not, I'm not that young. So I, That I, was I, my I, home. Um, so I went in there and, you know, as I was learning more about more and more about computers, these 10 and 12 and 14 year olds would come in and do things with these computers that just blew my mind. I was like, wow, you can do that. And it just kept being, okay, if you can do that, I can do this with it. And it just was a continual learning process. You know, it's the, the, it's the nature of everyone's life. If you're not always learning, I can guarantee you one thing, you're slowly decaying. Because sure. the world is not going to stop. So yeah, it's very true. No, that, that's a very true statement. You always got to be adapting, evolving, and learning. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind because the world's not going to stop and wait for you to catch up. So that I, I completely agree with. So well, get Radio in. Shack, I went to Travelers. I did insurance. And then I went to, I did um, manufacturing programming, basically bringing the first computers to lines for the Japanese in America with the Tochu Steel and Yamamoto fine blanking and then evolved into this idea, which then consumed the last decade and a half of my life. All right. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. That's a long time to consume or for a single idea to consume your life. It's not a bad thing. It's just a long time. So you got into it and how did you originally kind of come up with the idea? I mean, you've been obviously working with computers for a while and uh, been in that atmosphere, but how did you kind of, what got you kind of started on that idea or down that path? My subconscious assembled a bunch of information I had in a way I never considered and beat me to death in one night in a dream, literally. And this is not a joke. I get up in the morning and at that point in time, my computer desk was literally right next to my bed because I rolled out of my chair to sleep. Uh, I rolled over, started typing and my, my wife kept saying, what are you doing? And I told, just leave me alone. I got to type this. I typed for five days, hit a button and I didn't know what I created. I swear to God, that's the truth. Hmm. That's how I got here. So I then had to teach myself the rest of the way, what the hell it was. <laughs> and as I learned, it blew my mind how profound a, your mental knowledge that you bring in all day from all these sources can be reassembled even when you're not paying attention. Well, that is interesting. There, there is certainly an aspect of life where you learn a lot along the way and you don't always know how you will apply it or how it will be applicable. And then a lot, sometimes it just all comes together and, and the, the perfect storm, so to speak, or the perfect fashion. And that's uh, interesting that it, it all started with a dream. So you had the dream. You uh, sat down, write it all, wrote it all out, spent some day or a few days on it, and then you had to figure out how to implement it. So then how did you take that dream and start to make it a reality? First, I had to show it to some people to explain to me what I created. I'm not joking. I really didn't understand. I somehow applied physical world security protocols to internet activity. Okay. And that still hasn't been done by anyone else. So if you're to have the audience that's, you know, let's say they're not as computer or tech savvy or don't know the lingo as much, what would be your very high level or explanation to, for people as to what you worked on and created? Okay. If I can ask you 
three questions. I can answer your question with them. All right. Always, always, always interesting to answer a question with the question. So go ahead. The premise is I'm going to give you a monster box with 500 gold coins in it. Okay. And you can't put it in the bank. Mm -hmm. You can't tell anyone. What are you going to do? I'm going to go spend it as quick as I can. Oh, let's preface that one more. Wherever you put it, you have to put it on a scale. And every month, you can take 10 coins out. So for the next 50 months, you can have 10 ounces of gold at whatever market value is at any point. If you ever take more than 10 out, it all gets taken back. Now, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to take my 10 and then go hi- or go bury it or hide it as quick as I can so nobody else finds it until I need it for the next month. Okay, so you're going to restrict access. Sure. Okay. Now, who are you going to tell about it? Um, probably my wife. That'll probably be about it, or unless I, unless, uh, unless uh, maybe my parents, maybe my wife, maybe my kids, maybe not. A few so people you're that gonna- I trust. So after you restrict access, you're going to choose who you're going to authorize to have that information. Sure. Okay. Those two questions are what's missing in the internet. Okay. You'll have to expound a little bit on it. So go ahead. My bank holds all the treasure of every customer. Mm-hmm. Correct? Sure. They put a website portal so anyone in the world can log on. Mm-hmm. But they know who all their customers are. Sure. Okay. Why do you, let's just say you're a small local bank, 5,000 local customers. Really, you're the heart of what the banking system should be. Mm. But you've got a website that introduces 17 billion people, actually it's closer to 20 billion devices, to your website portal where your customers are. So you start your cybersecurity with 20 billion potential attackers so that you can let five thousand people get on Mm -hmm. that's where cybersecurity fails yeah so if i were to almost push back or ask a question but i mean the reason usually online that you're doing it is because you're trying to balance not making it too arduous to get access to your own money right meaning if i if i put enough barriers and make you know 20 factor authentication it'll make it very hard for access you know hackers to get in but nobody will ever want to use the bank because it's going to take me an hour and a half to log into my account to use it. So how do you make that balance? Couldn't agree that? more. That's always the pushback. So sure. another question gives you the answer. When you go to Walmart and get to the cashier, does the cashier reach in your pocket, take out your wallet, extract the money and put the wallet back in your pocket? Or do you reach in your pocket, pay them and put, take your debit card, put it back in your pocket and walk away? I certainly hope it's the latter. Okay. But if you're online, any, any entity on the internet can send data to the bank and the bank assumes you approved it. Hmm. Why would it be so difficult for you to open your wallet, plug your, plug your debit card into a USB-C, hit one button and say, hey, bank, I'm present right now. You can approve the charge. And then unplug it and put it back in your wallet. And when you're not plugged in, the bank knows you're not present, so you can't be running a charge. No, you could certainly do that. 
That I mean, oh. that, with the exception of if somebody stole your card and they did it on your behalf, then you they could uh, still do fraud. But it would at least there's no it. way to eliminate fraud. But if you eliminate the guess, sure, you eliminate over three million dollars an hour in online credit card fraud. No, okay. I, I get that. That's certainly that's the security protocol. So the question is, if you take that number and extrapolate it, and then you take all the chargebacks and everything else, is sucking $190 billion a year out of the economy in theft worth ignoring two basic protocols? You restrict access, and you actually identify someone rather than assuming if data arrives, it came from the person that has the right. So let me give you the, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate, and you're getting an attorney that likes to play devil's advocate, so I'll play devil's I'm advocate good. for a minute. So if you were to do that, and then you were, so let's say you take the scenario where you have basically a card reader. If you're at home, you want to log no, in. No, you don't have a card reader. Don't need a card reader. Okay. Okay. You're, you're taking the concept that we're talking about and applying it to the way you look at it. Why is a debit card shaped the way it is or a credit card shaped the way it is? It's shaped that way so it can go through a card reader. And so but we're now living in an almost entirely digital world where you're doing literally almost everything through a USB-C port mm -hmm. or a USB port. So why keep the form factor of a card when you can change it to a USB-C type of device that you can just put on your keychain and plug in when you want to be present at the bank? No. One okay. token at the bank eliminates public access, provides existence as a factor because it, you have to plug it in. So what we're verifying is that the card that the bank issued you exists. That's mm. a factor, a non-data factor. And then anything I input at the endpoint is data. Two factors. Today, literally every single, every single company that claims multi or two factor is using endpoint data alone, which is one factor. That is a scientific fact. And that's why cybersecurity fails. And it's not anybody's fault. But if anybody admits the mistake, they're afraid they're going to end up taking the blame. And so parallelization keeps us right where we are, driving off a cliff. <laughs> well, hopefully we don't, we don't dri fully drive off the cliff yet, because I, I still want to live for at least now. So, um, so we finally broke through. So. <laughs> All right. So we take that. You have what's a, a great idea for cybersecurity, how to make it to a true two-factor two authentication to prove that the individual is actually present um, as opposed to what would be all doing it digitally, which has its flaws. And you take that. And then how do you turn that into a business? Or how do you start to actually take something that's the idea stage, get it or have somebody explain it to you, come up with, or come up with or a way to implement it? Then how do you turn that into a business? I don't know how other people did it, but I invested literally everything I own and then begged every family member and friend I knew. And I continued to do that for 14 years. Uh, I brought in, that led me to a venture group mm. that led me to proof of concept, government contracts, DHS recommendations. And then they decided that the plan that we were following to build the business turned into we can roll this thing fast for money. Mm -hmm. And two people went in two different directions and the company failed. I understood what we owned and they understood how much money they can make. And it was, to give you an example, it was the Bezos conversation. Bezos did a conversation with a bunch of um, Harvard business students 
-hmm. in the early days of Amazon. Mm. And after the, after the conversation was done, the first question was asked, so are you going to sell it to one of these big companies or one of these big companies? Not how are you going to build it? Mm. Okay. If the, the thing about being an inventor is if you've got a vision that's three years or five years or 10 years down the road, you have to fight an environment that's trying to shove you into the mistakes that you're addressing five years down the road that they don't see yet. Sure. No, and I completely get that. And I mean, it is, it was interesting. You bring up Bezos. I was listening to another podcast, so not my own, um, but it was talking just about how when he was introducing Amazon Prime, how, you know, it's going to be two days shipping and everybody said that can't be done. It's too expensive and everything else and how you're going to lose money. And it was with the acknowledgement, yeah, we're going to lose money on the front end for looking to, to change this up and to get it to where people are get used to and we can have a system for two days shipping. And it took a period of time. And then it's certainly been one of their very successful products. So completely get that. And yet, if I were to take the, the counter to Amazon, which is not everybody has millions or billions of dollars to burn or to wait until the market catches up, and they don't oftentimes have those that much either dollars, you know, coming in or cash flow or investors, there is almost a tug and, tug and a pull, right? In the one sense, you're saying, I have the vision, I want to build this, I can see where this is going in five or 10 years. And yet, if I don't take some money, or I don't figure out how to monetize it or build it into a business, it's going to die in the vine, right? So we'll never make it to the world because it, it, business runs out of steam, runs out of money. And so how do you balance that? I mean, you can only go to friends and family or investors so long before they start to get fatigued and before you're not able to do it. So where's that line or how do you figure out when is, when is the point to start taking in then they're figuring out a way to monetize something. I always knew how to monetize it. I never knew when to monetize it. Mm. Okay. Part of, I can't help people with that decision. That's a personal thing. Okay. Sure. I believed in my technology and I was open to many conversations with companies that could have literally made me rich today, but it would have required a compromise in the te technology, which would have in the end required a compromise in my integrity. And I chose my integrity over money. And every time I did that, someone would say, well, why are you doing that? I said, you know, I don't want to be the Oppenheimer who says, don't blame me for the bomb. I just did the science. Well, right now, my patents control the science. If I let them turn it into a bomb, then I'm responsible. Now, other people may not look at it that way, but I, I did. Okay. Sure. And so, so then let's say you have, you know, the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, or you have the way to do it. Do you, is it better to, and just a hypothetical question, is it better to keep it, you know, for yourself or, you know, not not let it out into the world, so to speak, because there's a fear that it may be used in adverse or ways, right? So a lot of times with technology, you can introduce it and it can be used for a lot of good and it can be used for a lot of bad, right? So you take the internet as an example. There is a lot of good as connected people. Right now, people can connect with Zoom. They can try and keep doing with their business. They can have email. They can have access to more information than we have, you know, at any point previous in, in history. And on the other hand, you can also do criminal activities, you can do everything else. And yet, if you never if you never introduce the internet for fear that it would be used for bad, you'd also never have the good. So what, you know, and this is for you, but how do you make that balance is to, hey, if I, I hold, it, hold on to this too long, it's never going to do all the good that it could out of fear of the bad. No, I've never not been introducing it. 
I have explained it in such detail that someone can literally pick it up and duplicate every line of code and make it work. Hmm. Okay. Teaching and showing is not what it is. It wasn't held back for anything other than, okay. Everybody tracks for every move on the internet. Sure. But they still are making an assumption. They're assuming the person they're tracking is you. They may track five or six people and they might intermingle five or six people. And so you're really not positive about someone, but you have a really good idea. Mm. Okay. Now I provide a method where I can provide absolute assurance that you are you and I can track every move you make. That Mm. changes everything substantially. Sure. And our technology provides an ability by creating a secure class in a secure environment to track literally every move you make with a degree of assurance that takes out the assumption. There's one of a kind device assigned to one of a kind person that has one of a kind password for a pin for it. In order for it to be present, that one person's device and pin has to be present. If you tell someone, then you're liable. You know why you don't get charged for fraudulent credit card charges? Because the bank can't defend their process in court. Hey, someone sends me data. I assumed it was you. You're responsible for it. They can't defend the process in court. That facilitates crime. But if the bank knew every time that data arrived, it was absolutely you, then they'd know when not to approve it. Sure. No, I I get all that. So no, those are... Good point. I'll still go My back. problem was people wanted to put it into, into browsing type of things, mm. and they wanted to use it to accurately content mine about an individual's activity. And every mm. time a partner came to the table, that was where they wanted to go. And that was someplace I recreated a secure class. We didn't put a spying tool with absolute assurance in the marketplace. They're different things. They can be used different ways. In a secure environment, you don't browse because, you know, you wouldn't want someone browsing through the yard where you hid your gold, would you? <laughs> you only want the people in the yard where the people were the people you told to go in the yard. Sure. That's a fair assumption. Fair so word. for a bank to say, I want you to be able to browse my website when really, when I'm a customer, when I want to go to the bank, I should plug in my tar- card and go to the bank. The bank doesn't need to have a website open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to 20 billion people so that I can plug in a debit card to prove that I'm there. They already gave me a debit card. Sure. No, that's a fair point. Okay. So, then, like, so jumping okay. forward. So we, we could go down that rabbit hole for a very long time and it'd be a fun conversation, but then we'd go, we'd spend way too long for anybody else to want to listen. So we were to jump to that and say, okay, we've, we've got all that in mind. We've kind of gone through the pluses and minuses, kind of how you're, you know, maintaining control for so it doesn't use, isn't used for bad purposes, um, you know, booster or coming up the original idea, going out, friends, families, you know, having helped them invest. So what's the plan to roll it out now? Or what's the, or, you know, how's the, how's the business going to evolve so that you can still introduce technology, do good in the world, keep the control and uh, keep moving it forward. 10 months ago, I went to a financial fiduciary. Hmm explained everything I had, everything I, all the technology, the patents, the research, the reports from the Department of Homeland Security, all of the stuff that was like, he looked at it and said, holy shit, I can't believe anybody has this much information. I said, what can you do? I need to raise some money. Hmm. 
I don't know the first thing about business, and this is where a scientist always gets screwed, because we think we're saying one thing, business people are saying another thing, and we keep talking past each other, and nothing sure. seems to work. Tim Harper, my financial manager guy, who's now my co-chairperson and operating company, we don't talk past each other. So when we go in conversations and everybody's talking past me because the scientist is hearing one thing and the business person is saying something different, Tim has been able to bridge that communication gap. Hmm. Since then, we've assembled our material, put our marketing plan together. They've got all the published material ready to go. Um, we're probably 30, 40 days from complete funding. Uh, the problem was coronavirus or we would have been there already but you know life is what it is just slowed things down but for me the only path to find someone who was committed by law because they're fiduciaries and he signed a fiduciary agreement to act in my best interest to help me learn the things I don't know because we all have enough knowledge in areas to be dangerous Mm. Most of us are ashamed to admit that we don't have enough to be knowledgeable. I know where I know enough to be dangerous and don't have enough knowledge to be functional. And so mm. I had to find that piece. And I found that in Tim and he found Lance and we've now started assembling. And, you know, the only thing that I require from everybody is you deal with me in every way and everyone we deal with, with integrity. If you don't, there's a door. I don't want your loyalty to me loyalty to be to me I want it to integrity they beat me up regularly because I don't understand things and they teach me and I'm not always an easy person to teach but I also do the same thing to them and that is what I believe will bring us to the success part of this having a team that has the same clear vision and they deal with each other with integrity all right so if I'd almost summarize that it'd be then with the idea that um Basically, you, you know the weak, you, you know what you know, and you know what you don't know. In the sense that you know your weaknesses, you know where your strengths are, and then technology and the science, and for the business side, and that you find someone that you can trust that maybe you know can speak the language that maybe you can't or that you're that you're not focused on, and then you bring them into the business to help run that part of the business that isn't your your expertise or your talent set, so that you can have a, a well-rounded team. Is that a fair summary? Yes, and. The hardest thing for inventors to do is admit they don't know something because sure. they know everything about what they invented. Yeah. Literally, they know everything about what they invented. They invented it. They have to know everything. Well, and no, they're, my they're, experience with a lot of inventors do this is they can't admit they don't know beyond what they already know. So that's the yeah, hardest no, piece for an inventor true. to get and you do to get into the trap that you think that, hey, if I can come up with the world's best widget, you know, the best product. That by by definition, people will be pounding down my doors to do that, and there's always never the case. Okay, there's well, always a business overlay to that, and how or how to navigate both sides of it. And yet, we think that you know, if we know the product, then we we know everything we need to. So I think that's a good point. Well, we are bumping the key up towards is a cooperative relationship. The key What's that? Is a cooperative relationship. Yeah. The key is a cooperative relationship, and what my experience until I found a fiduciary was that these always started to have comf- or cooperative and then turned confrontational when one part, one party wanted to go one way and another party wanted to go another. Try no, to I, make sure you I, correct that at the beginning. I think that's a very good point. So, hey, well, we're jump or bumping up against towards the end of the podcast. It's always, always get to the end of every episode and I always want to talk a whole lot more and there's always a lot more rabbit holes to go down and a lot more fun conversations to have. Um, but um, 
as we wrap it up, I always ask two questions at the end of the podcast. And so I'll, I'll ask you the same as uh, the other guests that have been on. And the first one is, so what's the worst business decision you've made? And giving you the context, I always ask that in the sense, we always get to hear the highlights of the business, how I made the right decisions or I took the right path. And now, you know, everything worked out type of a thing. But we oftentimes will learn as much or more from the mistakes that we or others have made. So with that, what's, what would be the worst uh, business decision you've made? Not taking the time to focus early on learning what the business side was doing. I was too focused on the technology. And that's mm-hmm. where I watched the first company fall apart. Is without, that, without someone bringing the two pieces together, they just kept moving in different directions. If I could go back and do anything differently, I would have worked harder with the business people to keep us with the same vision. Okay. No, that's a very good, uh, good thought. So I think that recognizing that early on can oftentimes, you know, save a business or otherwise uh, keep you from making it, you know, things not working out or not having the plan and how to move forward. So I think that's a very good, very good point And that's something to learn. from. Okay. Second question is if you're having someone that uh, was wanting to get in a startup, maybe in cybersecurity or in the computers or technology, they're just getting into it, what, what would be the piece of advice that you would give them? Take responsibility for everything. Hmm. In the end, if it's yours, you're responsible. It doesn't matter who screwed up where, it's still your fault. Yep. If you do that, no matter how bad things go, there's a path. I'm still standing 14 years later because I did that. There's a path if you know that you contributed. No, I mean, that, that's very good. If, 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 if you don't pass a buck and you know at the end of the day, you're the one responsible for what your company and what your business does, then you can make sure, you know, then you'll take a much different perspective of making decisions. So I think that's, that's a great piece of advice. Well, well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. I greatly appreciate you coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure. Always wish we had more time, but uh, that's how life is. You always wish you had more time for everything. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, for those of the viewers that are those listeners and viewers, um, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, uh, feel free to apply for the podcast. You can just go to our website, inventivejourney.com and apply. Um, for those of you that are looking or along your inventive journey and uh, need help with patents or trademarks, uh, we're uh, here at Miller IP. We're here to help. And for everybody else, we wish you the best journey and uh, good luck on, on, on taking your path. Thank you again, uh, Chris. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you.